Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Second chapter, line 30. Actually, let's start at line 29, just to be a little more concise. Um, Together. Yama. Niyama. Asana. Asana. Pranayama. Pratyahara. Dharana. Dhyana. Samadhi. Ashta, Ashta. Anga. Anga. Eight limbs. Ashta, eight Anga limbs. Um, the first limb is as follows. Ahimsa, Ahimsa. Satya, Satya. Asteya, Brahmacharya, Aparigraha. Non-harming, non-harming, honesty, honesty, non-stealing, non-stealing, the wise use of sexual energy, the wise use of sexual energy, not being greedy, not being greedy. Line thirty-three. Unwholesome thoughts can be neutralized by cultivating wholesome ones. In contemporary neuroscience, there is something called reciprocal inhibition. This means that in one moment of experience, you can't have both a positive thought and a negative thought. It's either one or the other. You can alternate in split seconds back and forth but in one mind moment, it's either positive or negative. I mean, try it. Try thinking, try thinking a very happy thought towards someone and a negative thought at the same time. And you'll probably notice that you'll actually alternate. It's hard to do it exactly the same moment. So any thought will be positive. Yeah, I mean, the point is not to argue about it, but rather just to see that when there are unwholesome thoughts, 
those unwholesome thoughts can get neutralized by cultivating wholesome thoughts. Angela. What about ambivalence? Ambivalence. Test it out in your experience. Paradox, sure. But a paradox usually you're you're going back and forth between something or you're stopped. Dead in your tracks. I want I want to just move kind of through this part because uh, I don't want to keep you here another week. <coughs> now the longest sentence in the Yoga Sutra. This is the most important sentence of the text. Well, the next two are actually. We ourselves may act upon unwholesome thoughts such as wanting to harm someone or we may cause or condone them in others. Unwholesome thoughts may arise from greed, ill will, or delusion. They may be mild, moderate, or extreme, but they never cease to ripen into ignorance and suffering. That is why we must cultivate wholesome thoughts. Can we unpack that a little bit? We ourselves may act upon unwholesome thoughts. So as selves, we act upon some of these thoughts that arise, especially when they're unwholesome. And you may know from experience that actually it's the unwholesome thoughts that are most seductive. Because look at gossip columns. They sell newspapers. You don't see like an inquirer that's praising people. Would it sell? It's hard to say. But we like the negative thoughts. We may act upon unwholesome thoughts, such, so there's an example here, such as wanting to harm someone, but it's not just, so he's talking here about ahimsa of speech, right? Not having the intention to harm in speech. We may cause or condone the same thing in others. Unwholesome thoughts, I wouldn't put may here, but unwholesome thoughts do arise from three things. Greed, hatred, or delusion. They may be mild, moderate, or extreme. And here's the kicker. They never cease to ripen into ignorance and suffering. Whenever you act upon an unwholesome thought, cause it or condone it in others, whether it's mild, whether it's moderate, or it's extreme, it will never cease to ripen into ignorance and suffering. That is why we must cultivate wholesome thoughts. It's kind of nice here, you know, he's not just giving a commandment, but he's explaining why it's beneficial from a psychological and from a relational perspective. I think that this is the kind of sentence that captures how ethics, psychology, and spirituality, or relationality, can't be separated. You have them here packed together in this sentence. For those of you that teach yoga, if you ever um, 
when you're not in an inversion, actually talk to your students? This is one of the uh, sentences that are worth quoting. And now, my favorite sentence of the whole text. Being firmly grounded in nonviolence creates an atmosphere in which others can let go of their hostility. He's not saying that this is going to benefit you. He's saying when you're firmly grounded in non-harming, it creates an atmosphere where others can let go of their hostility. He's not saying others will let go of their hostility. He's saying others can let go of their hostility. Otherwise, it would be like the United States telling North Korea to not build nuclear weapons. How, how could you expect that? How is that possible? Or imagine if somebody from another country like, um, you know, Portugal. Imagine if Portugal decided that they wanted to come to the United States and look for weapons of mass destruction. In the journal, you'll see that there's an article by Chris Chappell, and at the end of the article, he tells a beautiful story about uh, Gandhi, that Gandhi's grandson told him, where there was, how does it go? Um, Do you remember, Cindy? A a mother wants her son to stop eating sugar. A mother wants her son to stop eating sugar. She takes him to see Gandhi and says, can you please tell, correct me if I'm wrong in this, but can you please ask him to stop eating sugar? And Gandhi says, you know, come back, what, is it in a few weeks or something? And, um, and so he comes back and then Gandhi says, you know, stop eating sugar. <laughs> and then the mother says, why did I have to come back after a week? And uh, Gandhi says, uh, because first I had to stop eating sugar. So, being firmly grounded and not harming, so when you yourself are practicing ahimsa, it creates an atmosphere in which others can let go of their hostility. For those grounded in honesty, every action and its consequences are imbued with honesty. For those who don't have an inclination to steal, what's truly precious is at hand. When you're wise with sexual energy, you have vitality. There is energy. Freedom from wanting unlocks the real purpose of existence. I think we'll stop there. Freedom from wanting unlocks the real purpose of existence.
Any questions about this? Office. The question actually has to do with the fact that this, that this part of the Yoga Sutras yeah. is very similar to other religions. It's kind of the basis for yeah. different forms of religion. Yeah. But there is something very different about yoga. Mm-hmm. And I know you referred to that at the beginning, mm-hmm. but I would love to hear it soon. Because I think that that's really, people always ask me why I do this. I'm not very clear. But you know that there's, there's, some, there's a fundamental difference in this practice. Mm-hmm. Even at the core, it shares the core of many other practices. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, first of all, just in terms of the yamas, they're not considered commandments handed down from God. If you don't have a God in your system, I mean, if you don't have Santa Claus where you're going to be punished for good and bad, you have to have something. So what replaces that projection into some kind of existential realm or transpersonal realm of a kind of punishment and reward system? Well, it brings it much more into the human realm, which is karma. The question is, you know, more aptly put maybe, why does Patanjali wait until halfway through the second chapter to talk about the yamas? Why, if, if that's the first limb, why didn't he talk about that first? Well, because he taught two things first. First, he taught samadhi. That when you get niroda of the citta vritti, when you're not caught up constantly in the revolution of your imagination, then you recognize a reality that's free of what you think it is, which he calls samadhi. First chapter, samadhi pada, the chapter on integration. And then he teaches karma, the law of cause and effect, that you have to meditate on your actions to see the consequences. Because if you don't get the first part, samadhi, and you don't get the second part, karma, then the yamas just start to look like the same commandments you find in every other religion. It's beyond the scope of what we're doing here to start comparing it to other religions. Um, The point, though, is that Patanjali waits before he talks about the yamas, A, and B, when he talks about them, he talks about them in such a way where he says, you know, when one is practicing, one is not inclined to steal. One is not inclined to steal, which gives this feeling of it being a suggestion. I like to think of the yamas as suggestions for how to live wisely, with wisdom and compassion, if that's the practice ideals that we're aiming at. Then here are suggestions for how to do that. Um, And what that does is right away it makes you recognize the kind of actions that you take in body, speech, and mind. Not harming your own body, not harming other bodies, not harming other people in how you speak to them, and not harming yourself in how you speak to yourself about yourself. And not harming in thought 
that there's all kinds of ways we create harmful thoughts and get caught in the the cul-de-sac of negative thinking, which always goes to the same place. I don't want to make it sound like I watch a lot of TV, because I don't, but I've been referencing television a lot. But have you, you know, seen this show um, uh, called CSI? <laughs> Has anybody watched this show? Yeah. It's the same show every single time. It's the same show. First, they terrify you with, you know, this bloody incident. Then they give you a little character drama. So you can, you know, be traumatized with the people who are doing the work. And then um, they catch the person. Almost always a man. No, it's not a man, it's a couple. And they're incredibly punishing, too. Like, whenever the person who's perpetuated the crime, you know, realizes they've been caught, they get kind of belligerent, and then there's this finger wagging. Yeah. Oh, well, you know. And it, like it's absolutely, even if the person came from a possibly sympathetic motive. Yeah. Like there They're always like it's <laughs> Sure. Violence. Exactly. There's absolutely no quarter there. Yeah. You, you have to be bad. Exactly. And so, you know, to tie that into how this relates to our mind is that our mind kind of runs in these grooves, but the grooves usually <coughs> have a dead end. And I think that, you know, it's not enough to teach about dukkha because you teach about dukkha and people then say, well, you know, then everything is suffering. Then where do you go with that? That's so depressing. It's not enough to teach impermanence because if you say everything is impermanent, if you add that to everything is suffering, <laughs> and that's a misunderstanding. It's not that everything is suffering. It's that life can be characterized with dukkha. That life is characterized as, you know, this, this sense of impermanence or unreliability. Lately I've been trying to translate impermanence as provisionality, that everything is provisional, which, give, which reminds you that it's not just that it's changing, but that it's dependent on something, which is also changing. You you would end up like Nietzsche because Nietzsche had all the same insight and he ended up with in a nihilistic framework because if you only see suffering and impermanence then you end up and I'm sure some of you have felt this in your practice what's the point of anything? If who cares what I do? If everything is impermanence who, who cares? Well, that's because there's a major piece missing, and it's what Patanjali spends the first chapter and a half on, which is karma. That your actions matter, and that the cure for nihilism is karma. It's seeing that nihilism is A, being stuck in a view, and B, it's thinking that your actions don't count, and your actions do count. And we can get very philosophical about karma, but you can also be super, super simple with it. Um, People who go travel or spend time in Buddhist countries, they often come back talking about karma because you see it in very simple ways that people see that the kind of actions that they do really affect 
the web of life, even you know their family or relations or whomever. Um, sometimes we think here that our actions don't matter. Yeah. I think a lot of people think that. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Especially if nobody knows about them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, there's some truth to that, though, because, <laughs> you know, I think that this phenomenon of North America is that we have so many different cultures and our capacity to build a common context in which to see actions and understand their movements has been very fragmented. Mm-hmm. So it does feel like, okay, we do gesture, but no one's there to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that has affected us and traumatized people. Mm-hmm. And so you get into this you know, reality mm-hmm. show culture where everything has to be shown now. Mm-hmm. And it's what seen, though. Yeah. That's the thing, right? So that's really why people don't. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to be seen to do it? Mm-hmm. This is why I was saying yesterday that optimism, we have to link optimism <laughs> into culture. We have to link optimism into karma, because karma is useless if there's no optimism that your positive actions are going to have repercussions. If you don't believe that, that the individual is going to spread out into the culture, then you're in the same you got the same hang-ups. Like, why are you going to even bother to be a better person, whatever that means, relationally, yeah. if there's no, if there really is no effect to the cause? You know, often optimism. Well, yesterday I, mean, I had this real crisis yesterday. That there's no, <laughs> no optimism. Like we were sitting around here, a bunch of yogis saying, "Oh, the the population at large would never understand," and that's like, of course they would. That's that's my job. <laughs> well, Chali is an optimist. Look what he just said. He said, "Unwholesome thoughts can be neutralized by cultivating wholesome thoughts." He didn't say, "Unwholesome thoughts can be neutralized." thing to put too much stock into outcomes about your actions. That if you think that, oh, if I practice yoga in this way, it will have a, a, an overall good effect. You have this version of good. And you sure, you hope that, you know, people will that it will be an over, a, over a positive experience. But, you know, I think people take away from it what they will. And, and I think the understanding that you can't control the outcome in the end is more beneficial than a utopian idea of what's supposed to happen. Well, that might not be related to optimism because remember karma yoga is that you're not clinging to your... to the fruit of your action. If you take that superficially, that's like saying, here... Tita, I love you so much. Happy birthday. <laughs> I don't. Cl- I'm not. I don't cling. So you can have my used Kleenex <laughs> because I don't. Yeah, I'm not clinging to the. That's a misunderstanding. Um, it's that because when I'm not clinging to this, then there is generosity there because there isn't so much separation and I'm not giving her something 
that means nothing. I'm giving her. So I'm going to give her something that means. I'm going to take time to think about what's meaningful for her, and I'm going to give her that, because not being attached to the fruit actually makes me clearer internally in how I'm then going to respond. So now I'm going to respond to Tita from, you know, I'm going to consider what Tita really, really wants. Not being attached to the fruit doesn't mean you don't pay attention to what the effects of your action are. You You don't, yeah. You observe the effects of your action. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it means that if you're trying to do something for social change, you're going to spend a lot of time thinking about how the change is going to work and what it might look like. But when you start doing the work, A, you're not attached to the me in it. So how I'm then going to be known as a great facilitator of social change, and you're not clinging to exactly what that social change is going to end up looking like because you can't know from here. But you're acting out of a deep optimism for um, you know, the faith that human beings can work together. And maybe we'd add to that, and that they don't need to be told what to do. But I have a really concrete example. I used to work in community economic development, and um, a couple of years ago, funding was really being taken away all across the board because of a national um, scandal involving human resources development in Canada. And there were about 11 projects that were just going to be, you know, just gone by the end of the year because the funding was going to be removed. So I helped spearhead a lobbying effort, and there was a big conference. And so, you know, my optimism was that we could just get people talking together and they would understand how this works on a local level, that would be fine. And I got so caught up in managing the process. I had these huge charts of seating because I would deploy certain people <laughs> to talk with other people. I, I designated the colors of markers that my notebookers had to use because I color-coded each table. <coughs> yeah, I, I, without control. I mean, you know, I was not, I was not a non-violent person that day. You know, and, and it's just, like in, in my various involvements with different community agencies, so, much, so often I see these community groups, they're staffed with people who don't like people. They like principles. They like ideology. They like social justice, but they don't like they don't like talking to this person who's in crisis in front of them. They don't offer their their, their volunteers donuts because they're too busy writing the next grant proposal. And so I, I I resonate very much with what you said about well I, I just want to get through this day talking just nicely to Arvin. And but at the same time, I also resonate with what you say in that, well, with the lack of organization, you know, the, the ego wants something bigger. Yeah. It wants something more effective. Yeah. But I think maybe that's... I mean, I want to get through this nice day with talking nicely to Arlen. Meanwhile, Arlen's at his grandparents, and I'm here doing this with you. So I think there's a balance, too, and that... The balance is that sometimes, for some people, they're moved in their practice to then go out into the world and to uh, affect change. But I think we also have to understand that people go out into the world and affect change really differently. And some people affect change by actually withdrawing from the world. And um, sometimes that's really good for the world. And um, 
you know, right now in Buddhism, there's a big debate going on about how whether Buddhism can really establish itself in North America without monasteries. Because there's something about the power of having people whose lives are dedicated to um, a certain level of formality in the practice that then offers the culture something, and the the culture also offers them something. And, um, you know, many people say that, people, you know, like Robert Thurman, a big proponent of this, saying, you know, until there's a very strong monastic community in the Buddhist community, you know, in the Western Buddhist community, Buddhism can't quite establish itself fully. Um, not sure how I feel about that, but I think it's an important point. And I think it's an important point because we have to see how formal and informal practice work together. In the same way in your own life, you have to see how the formal and the informal work together. And so when we're talking about social action or ecological awareness, um, from the perspective of Patanjali, that's not any separate than what you're doing in your practice. And here he's saying, you know, how do you practice? And he's telling you how to speak kindly to people. And he's saying that when you stop being greedy, the precious is at hand. And um, so there's no division between the personal, the social or ecological, and the spiritual. And by spiritual meaning, taking in something other than your own self-reference. But in a way, your self-reference is there because it's, it's always going to be there to a certain degree. Because you, it's like what Tita said at the, the beginning, as far as you know, why we do yoga and sort of you know, between religion and stuff and God and stuff and God. Is maybe it's because the power is given back to you. Mm-hmm. The power is back to you. It's saying, what are you going to do with these particular conditions? Okay, goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) So... Thank you very much to all of you. It's so nice having such a great group. This is my favorite uh, intensive so far. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, it's nice to take some time out of what you normally do and just have some time to devote to practice and hopefully to practicing different parts of all of these different limbs so that you start to see how they work together and you also start to see that when they're working together what we're doing in this little room is not um, altogether different than how you go about doing all of your days and your relationships and um, and that I think it's important to have also this idea in our practice that has room to grow that part of our practice is doing it with other people and that it's not just the solo practice of you at home trying to think about how these things go together um, but also noticing in other people in a group which is nice in a small group like this and how they're understanding things or 
getting confused or what they're going through in their practice in their life because it helps you better frame your own experience yeah and also that we're so lucky that we get to do this I mean there are places in the world where we would never be able to be there because it would not be safe or because uh, men and women could, can't congregate or because you can't talk about these things and, and um, or maybe you know you don't have the money or the leisure time or maybe you have too much money and too much leisure time and um, so all the conditions are just right that all these unique people can come together in this room and do this together and we'll leave and we'll have this experience but it can't ever be repeated again either which is also kind of nice you can take all the photos we want and record these things and but you can't you can't get the experience back again so hopefully some things that you've learned will be like little seeds little sangskaras that have been planted now and then somehow the right conditions will come you'll be walking in the park one day and you go oh that's all you'll be in the back bend and say oh there's that So, namaste. Thank you.